I am, for, for, well, for the last couple of weeks, I've been in rehearsal for a play. We will open today in, in Carney. It's a small thing. And uh, the, the play is The Secret Garden. The Secret Garden is a story that takes place in 1906 in England. There's a little girl, Mary Lennox. And Mary is lost. Not, not lost in a way like she's lost in the woods or lost at sea or anything like that. Mary is lost in life. As, as the book opens in the very first chapter, we, we hear that her family all dies of a, a cholera plague. She's left all by herself uh, in, in a foreign land and gets shipped back to England to, to live with an uncle that she's never met. An uncle who himself is lost in his own tragedies. And the whole story follows as, as they try and find their way, try and find life again. Well, along the way, as they're lost, there is also this secret garden, thus the name of the story. This garden is also lost. It's, it's a place that has been shut up for 10 years and is overgrown with weeds and, and it's just gone. And so as Mary starts to, to care for this garden, or, or starts to try and find her way into this garden that she's seen a wall, she meets a young man, Dickon, who, who is just a man of the earth, who, who cares for animals and cares for the plants. And, and he starts to, to teach her. And there, there's this... There's a scene in the play as, as Mary has just expressed her, her desire to find the key, to finally find the key and find the door and get into this garden so that she can see it, so that she can be there, so that, so that this journey can continue. And so Dickon is working with her and, and getting her all set to find this key. And then he says, well, I'll be off then. And, and Mary's shocked. She says, well, aren't you going to help me to find the key? And as though the thought never occurred to him, he turns and tells her, well, that's why I'm leaving. A person can't find anything in a crowd. But I'll be around. And off he goes. And Mary's left alone to find this key. A person can't find anything in a crowd, he says. I think we've all probably felt pieces of that, haven't we? We've all at various times felt that lostness. Felt that idea that, that there's, there's the crowd around us and, and, and for everything that's coming at us, for the, for the hectic nature of the schedule, for all the things that are coming, we can't find ourselves or anything. Have you felt the weightiness of that? Have you felt the, the pressure of, of all that, that that comes down on us and all that, that that screams for our attention and tries to tries to grab hold of our attention and keep us on pulled in so many different ways and, and just that feeling of lost in the midst of all that? We've been talking through the last few weeks of of spiritual disciplines, of ways that we can get in step 
with God. Now remember that these things that we're talking about, these are not steps to holiness. These are not things that we do that are going to make us more holy, but these are tools that God has graciously given to us. Tools through which He works. As we talked about reading Scripture and, and, and implanting it into our lives and our hearts and our minds. We talked about seeking God in prayer. And these tools God has given us, He works through them to bring us more in line with, with Himself. So today we'll be talking about silence and solitude. This, this one's not as natural for us, really. I mean, we reading the Bible and praying, those, those were kind of obvious. This one is, is one that is a little bit more foreign to us, particularly in our Western mindset. Our Western mindset that is go, go, go. Our Western mindset that, that wants us to always be about something and be doing something and be accomplishing something. This one says we just need to stop for a minute. We need to stop. Clear away from the crowd so that we can find our way, so that we can be found in our way. So we're going to look today through Scripture. We're going to look at at several different examples of this. Most of them I'll probably just uh, tell the story, a story that we'd be familiar with. But I want us to start looking at Psalm chapter 46. We'll read through chapter 46 as, as we think a little bit about what this is to, to find this silence, to find this solitude. Psalm chapter 46 says, God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountain be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This verse, Psalm 46.10, is one that, that shows up on posters a lot. Put it up on Facebook even this week. Be still and know that I am God. It helps us as, as we look at, at just that line to be still and know that He is God. Some translations say, cease your striving and know that I am God. 
but it helps us as we're thinking about that, as we're, as we're considering that rest, to step back and look at the context of the whole psalm. Remembering that it starts out saying, God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. That there, it introduces this whole idea with the idea that there is trouble. There is need for a refuge. There is need for strength. And that God is where we can find that. There are all these images in there of the earth giving way, the mountains being moved, the waters roaring and foaming. This, this imagery that, that just looks like everything is in upheaval and falling all to pieces. And haven't you felt that in your life sometimes? Where, where it feels like you're trying to get a foothold and every time you put your foot down, the earth just gives way and there's nothing there and everything's falling apart and you're not sure when it's going to end. And it says here that God is our strength in that time. In that second stanza, it talks about him being in the midst of the city of God. Him being there with his people. That sometimes he doesn't stop that earth from giving way and the mountains from trembling and the waters from roaring and all that. He doesn't, he doesn't stop the situation. He's just with you there in the middle of it. Walking you through it. Your strength in that time of trouble. from there, from that place of knowing that God is with me in the midst of all of this. We're called in verse 8 to behold His works, to see the things that He does, to remember what He's done in our life, to see what He's doing in the world around us, and in all of that then, to be still. And to know that He is God. It's not my job to stop the earth from trembling. It's not my job to put the mountains back in their place, to calm the waters, to do all things. It's not my job to make sure that everything gets right. He is God and not me. And this is the knowledge to which the psalmist calls us. As he says, be still. And know that I am God. To do that requires that we stop, that we cease striving, as the psalm says, that, that we be still, which is not a comfortable thing for us. So I want to take a look at, at the stories of, of several figures throughout. Scripture, as we consider this idea of, of getting away and being still, and then at the end we'll, we'll talk about some of the things. Why don't we do this? And how can we do this? I, I thought of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob, who, who with, his, with his brother Esau, had, had been 
competing his whole life. Esau was the firstborn. He was bigger and burlier and a man's man. And he was the one who was to inherit everything. And yet Jacob was the one who kind of came along and was sneaking around. And he cheated Esau out of his birthright. Remember? And then later on in his father Isaac's life, he and his mother conspired to go and then take the blessing that Isaac was going to give to Esau as well. And we see Jacob taking the birthright, taking the blessing, and, and we see Esau's reaction to that, right? I'll kill him. He's taken everything that belongs to me. I'm going to kill him. And that's when Jacob's mother says, it might be best if you weren't around here for a while. Head on over to Laban and you can stay with him. And so Jacob hightails it out of there and off he goes and he's on his trip. And in Genesis chapter 28 is that, is that Jacob's ladder dream. Do you remember that one from Sunday school where, where Jacob comes to this desolate place? All by himself. And, and he lays down and puts this rock by his head and goes to sleep. And while he's asleep there alone in that desolate place, coming, running for his life out of the situation that, that has transpired at home and running for his life and is now alone out there. And God gives him this dream. Where it says he looks up and he sees as though it were a ladder from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And running for his life and alone in that desolate place, Jacob gets this vision from God that he is there. That God is there with Jacob in this time. It says even in verse 15 of chapter 28, Genesis, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob wakes up and says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of fear, in the midst of running for his life, out all alone, Jacob gets this reassurance from God that he is there. Let's fast forward a few generations. Come to the beginning of Exodus. Let's look at, at Moses. We, we get this really quick introduction at the beginning of, of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, we see that one Pharaoh died. A lot of time has passed. The new Pharaoh doesn't know anything about Joseph and all the good things that Joseph had done. So now there's all these Hebrews in, in, uh, in Egypt. And the Pharaoh's not too happy about that. So we get his plan to kill the firstborn of all the male Hebrews. Exodus chapter 2, we're introduced to this little baby who, who is Moses, who is saved, who didn't, uh, who didn't fall under the sword of Pharaoh. And that's just a few verses. That's, that's the first 10 verses of chapter 2, because then chapter 2, verse 11 says, One day when Moses had grown up, 
boom, like that. Moses is grown up. Moses goes out for a walk. While he's out for a walk, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And Moses rises up with with this injustice. He rises up with this anger over what he sees. And he lashes out in the way that he knows how. And he kills this Egyptian. And he goes and he hides his body in the desert. But then he finds out that what he's done has been seen. Somehow people know about this and people are talking about this. And Moses knows now that the Pharaoh is going to come for him. And so he hightails it to the desert. He goes off to the land of Midian, it says, where he just hangs out by a well. He, he meets a, a woman out there, gets married, has his father-in-law and everybody out there in the desert. And Moses spends 40 years just wandering around the desert, taking care of sheep. Moses goes from being one of the, the top w- well-kept people in Egypt to being a sheep herder in the desert, walking around all by himself. And God gives him some time. God gives him some time of just wandering around out there and and taking care of these sheep and, and trying to find water and all that. And that then is when God speaks to him from the burning bush. After wandering around the desert, after spending some time just Quiet by himself. God then speaks to him through the bush. Tells him that he has a plan to rescue his people. And that plan is going to be carried out through Moses. Elijah. Fast forward, clear up to 1 Kings. In Elijah... He goes up against the, the established religions. First Kings chapter 18 is that story of, of Elijah coming and, and challenging Baal. And the 400 priests of Baal. It says, you know what? You build your altar. Get the wood all ready. Put the sacrifice on it, but don't light it. Then you pray to Baal and let Baal light that sacrifice for you. And, and the 400 priests of, of Baal start their chants. They start their dances. They do all their things. And, and Elijah sits there and, and, and taunts them. Louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Certainly Baal's a god. Maybe, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. You've got to wake him up. Come on. And finally, they've worn themselves out. And, and Elijah sets up his altar and puts the wood on it, puts the sacrifice on it digs a big old trough around it, sends people off to get jugs of water and starts dumping water all over the sacrifice and then prays, Lord, light this sacrifice so that the people here may know that there is a God. Fire comes. It says it, it took the sacrifice. It burned the wood. It burned the stone. It licked up all the water. And there's, there's this incredible cry from the people as they see God's power on display and Elijah calling out to God. That's 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, Jezebel hears about this. Jezebel the queen hears about this. 
Jezebel, the one who follows that false god Baal, she hears about this and says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And Elijah runs. Elijah, who is just on this incredible high of, of seeing God's power on display and seeing the people fall on their faces and say, we will serve God. He now is running. Goes off and hides himself in a cave in a mountain. Says, God, what are you doing? I'm the, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one even following you. And now Jezebel's going to kill me. What are you doing? And as he hides out in that cave, it says that, that God sent a mighty wind that, that shook the very foundations of the mountain, but God was not in the wind. He sent an earthquake that, that caused such turmoil, but God was not in the earthquake. He sent fire down on the mountain, but God was not in the fire. And then there was a still, small whisper. And God spoke to Elijah in the small voice, in the whisper. I think there are a lot of times where whether it's the excitement of what's going on around us as maybe it was for Elijah whether it's the fear of what's happening we see that in all of these whether it's the uncertainty or just the chaos of so many things coming at us we just can't hear God's voice And this is where that discipline of silence and solitude comes into play. When we look at Jesus' life, we see this very thing on display again and again and again. That, that first time when we talked about Scripture and, and just soaking our lives in Scripture, we talked about Jesus Responding to the devil's temptations with scripture. Well, Jesus was tempted where? In the desert, in that desolate place where he was all by himself, where the Spirit of God had sent him out there alone. As we went through Mark several months ago, we, we heard it again and again. I was looking here at Mark chapter 1. Verse 35 comes right on the heels of, of, of Jesus preaching and Jesus healing many people and, and, and all the excitement over what he's doing. And Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. This was Jesus' custom to go out to that desolate place. That lonely place, that alone place to pray, to reconnect. We need that time. It's not healthy 
for us to, to need to have people around us all the time. It's also not healthy for us to never want people around us. We need community and we need times to separate and to just be alone with God. To be in that, in that quiet place, in that desolate place, in that lonely place. As, as Richard Foster writes in his Celebration of the Disciplines about this kind of thing, he says that, that loneliness is an inner emptiness, but solitude is an inner fulfillment. Loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. That we don't just go off alone just to be alone, but to be able to hear God's voice. We live in a distracted society. And we need these times of quiet. We need these times to be alone. So why don't we? Because for some of us, maybe, maybe there are some of us who are introverts and we're like, that sounds great. I want to do lots and lots of that. And yet we don't. We're not very good at doing that. And, and probably some of that is, is this idea of Productivity. I've got to be doing something. I've got to be accomplishing something. If, if I'm spending 10 minutes just sitting there quietly, imagine the things I could get done in 10 minutes. Imagine the emails I could respond to, the different things that I could do in 10 minutes. Or maybe I can sit quietly with my phone and, and I can get some stuff done and still it doesn't work like that. We need that time. Some of us are, are extroverts, and the idea of even saying solitude puts you on edge, and you're like, I, I, can't, I can't. I can't be alone. But we need that. We need that time to, to disengage from the distractions, to be able to hear God's voice when He's talking. We need that time to disengage from the distractions. Pay attention to our own heart and soul and what's going on there. And this is not some time of, of inner focus and look for God within you or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about paying attention to that soul that, that God has created. And that soul that is crying out for Him and to hear God's voice. So we say, I'm too busy. I don't, I don't have the time to do it. I, I need to be productive with that time. Or there's another fear, possibly, if we're, if we're honest. I'm not sure I'm going to like what I find if I'm alone with me. I, I like the distractions, because then I don't have to confront what's actually going on in me. But God wants more for us. He wants us to be able to grow in Him. And so my challenge is, is to take that time or to make that time, to just shut down from different things 
We, we do have a very busy world and we can say, I, I just don't have time. Susanna Wesley, John and Charles Wesley's mother, she had 12 kids. And, and it was said that, that at times when she just needed that solitude and with 12 kids around, you can guess she probably didn't get much of that solitude. She would just throw her apron over her head and sit in the corner. And that became her little space. And the kids knew that if mom's apron is over her head, we just back off and she's having her time. It doesn't have to be big. You don't don't have to get off to a retreat center or, or do any sort of thing. If you have a place you can go, excellent, do that. But even if it's just stepping into your closet and closing the door behind you for a little bit of time. We need to be able to to disconnect from the distractions around us. Ted Loder wrote a series of, of poems in the form of, of prayers. And there are some of these that, that as I was reading them, I think they speak to our, to our busy pace of everything. So I wanted to read a couple to you. One says, Holy One, there's something I wanted to tell you. But there have been errands to run. Bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do... And I forget what it is I wanted to say to you. And mostly I forget what I'm about or why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. We need to have time to shut down to disengage from distractions, and to just be quiet before our Maker. And so rather than assigning that to you for this week, we're going to do that right now. We're going to take one minute. We're going to take one minute to just close your eyes and just be quiet before God. There will be distractions. It will not go perfectly, and it will never go perfectly. Kids will make noise because they don't understand what's going on, and that's okay. But we're going to take one minute to just be quiet before God.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you desire to have relationship with us. Lord, we thank you that you have done the work for us to have life. We thank you that we can rest in you. That we do not weary ourselves trying to earn your love. To earn your salvation, you have done the work for us. God, thank you that you desire to draw us closer, ever closer to you. Give us the strength, Lord, to to take time this week to be silent before you, to trust you with our schedule enough that, that we can take that time to be still before you. Thank you for the minutes of the day that you give to us. Help us to use them well for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.